The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Recently, John Kegley and I were having a conversation about humility, what it is and what it looks like. And John mentioned a passage from C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters. All right, John, I, I gave you credit, okay? In uh, the passage, it's, it stuck with me. I don't know if you're familiar with this work by Lewis, the Screw Tape Letters, but it's actually one of my favorite works by them. Uh, the Screw Tape Letters is comprised of 31 letters written by a senior demon named Screw Tape to his nephew, Wormwood a younger and less experienced demon who has been charged with guiding a man called the patient away from the enemy, God. So here, Screwtape is giving some advice to Wormwood. Remember in this quote that God is the enemy. Listen to what he says, this fictional demon. The enemy, God, wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if, he, if it had been done by another. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly, as gratefully as in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. Do do you see what Lewis is getting at? He's saying God wants to transform humanity so that the joy that they would get, we would get from our greatest accomplishment, our greatest work of art, would have nothing to do with our pride. It's fascinating. For myself, I think of it like this. I, I play drums. I've mentioned this before. And so naturally, I fantasize about performing the perfect drum solo at the end of the concert that leaves everybody in tears or causes them to make that look on their face like something smells bad. You know that? If someone does something really impressive with an instrument, everyone makes this face like that. I don't know why. But that's what I dream about. That's what I think about. Well, Lewis is saying here that God wants to transform me in such a way that John Mark, our worship leader, who's also a drummer, could perform that same solo And it would bring me just as much joy as if I had done it myself. Because the joy has nothing to do with myself. It has nothing to do with my pride or my name. John Mark is not seen as a threat to me in my identity. Rather, his talent is seen as a gift to the world that I delight in and find beauty in. This quote from Keller reminds me of 
a passage from a book by Tim Keller, these questions that Keller asked in his book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Listen to what Keller asks here. He says, wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? I'm going to read that again. Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and is yet thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love the way you love it, the way you love a sunrise. Just to love the fact that it was done. For it not to matter whether it was their success or your success. Not to care if you did it or if they did it. You are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself. Because you're just so happy to see it. Okay, now, I don't know about you. But when I read those words from Lewis, when I read those words from Keller, I think, Lord, I want that. I want that. I want to be that type of person that is not caught up with myself, that is not self-seeking, but is rather about your glory and about the joy of others. Man, I desire that. But if I'm honest, I'm also cynical. And I know myself. And I wonder, is such a transformation, is such a humility, is such a selflessness even possible for humanity? Is it even possible? As we've walked through the book of Philippians is a body, we've seen Paul say that even when those who oppose him preach the true gospel, he rejoices. Even when those who oppose him preach the true gospel, he rejoices. He said that even though he desires to depart and be with Christ, yet it's more necessary to remain, not for him, but for the good of the church. He has exhorted the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility to count others more significant than themselves. He's exhorted them to look not only to their own interests, but also to the interest of others. In our text today, in verse 5, Paul exhorts the church to adopt towards one another in their relationships the same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. Adopt towards one another. In your relationships, the same attitude that we see in Christ. But it goes back to my question, right? How is that to happen? How are they to have this transformation? How are they to have this attitude? How are they to become this community that's character, characterized by humility and selflessness? How can this community, how can we live into the reality that Paul calls us to? How? Well, I think Paul shows us in our passage today. I think he shows us. Shows us the how. And the how is by beholding the beauty of Jesus Christ. The how is by Beholding the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
Let me take a step back here for a second. A few weeks ago in a sermon, I referenced the commencement address by the late author David Foster Wallace. If you can remember, Wallace, an agnostic who grew up an atheist, noted that in the real world there's no such thing as atheism. Uh, That everybody worships. And when you worship the things of this world, whether that's money, whether that's sex, whether that's power, they transform you. They have a way of transforming you into their image. And in the end, tragically, they will destroy you. Wallace beautifully articulates the reality that we all, as humanity, we're all in a search for beauty. We're all in a search for beauty. Everyone is looking for something beautiful to give themselves to. And the things of this world that we see as beautiful and therefore giving our lives to Money, sex, power, success, fame. The tragic thing is that they end up destroying us. And also, we end up becoming like them. We become what we worship day in and day out. And not only do we become like what we worship, but we become beholden to what we behold. I owe that alliteration to our pastor, Jonathan Hafes, and the insight. We become beholden to what we behold. Or can I say it this way? You will come to deeply love that which you choose to worship. What you choose to worship will take hold of your love and your affection. I think we forget this sometimes. So when we look at money and we go, yes, that is beautiful. That is worthy. I'm going to give my life to that because that's going to bring me peace, joy, contentment, right? And as we behold money in its glory day in and day out over time, it is capturing our affections. And we know that It is destroying us. We we know that it can't offer the life that it promises. Nonetheless, if we're honest, we love it. We love it. And I know we love it because we can't imagine our lives without it. We can't imagine our lives without these idols that we give our affection to. These idols that we simultaneously hate and love. This reality, in my mind, is why preaching that centers on guilt and human effort, try harder, be more selfless, be more like Jesus. It's why this preaching never brings about any transformation. It might bring about guilt in a moment, but not transformation. And the reason that it doesn't bring about transformation is because it does not address beauty. It does not address our search for beauty. And it does not address your affections, my affections, my 
loves. In uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, how does Romeo get over Rosalind? It's by beholding the beauty of Juliet. Do you remember his words when he sees her? Beauty, too rich for earth, too dear. Did my heart love till now? Forswear at sight? For I ne'er saw true beauty till this night. I don't think I'm going to quit my day job to become a Shakespearean actor. That was, that was butchered for all of my drama people in the room. I apologize, all right? But you get what he's saying. It was the beauty of Juliet that changed his affections from Rosalind. There was a Puritan pastor in the 1800s that in a sermon explained that naturally our lives are controlled by desire. Our lives are controlled by love for the world. We've all experienced this. We know this reality to be true, right? Well, what are we to do? Try to convince ourselves that the world's not so beautiful after all? That it's not so good after all? He says no. He says no one can dispossess the heart of an old affection but by the expulsive power of a new one. No one can remove from the heart an old affection unless there is a new affection that comes in, something more powerful than the old one. So how can this Philippian community, how can you and I not just say, yeah, we really need to be more like Jesus, but can really be transformed can be a people who is selfless and humble. Well, it's going to happen by beholding something more beautiful than the things of this world. By beholding the beauty of Christ. <coughs> I got a tickle in my throat. <coughs> There's nothing I can do right now. We're just going to pause. I thought about gargling, but that'd be super awkward. <laughs> Lord, help me. Thank you for water. Okay. So if what I said is true about beauty, then I think it worth us spending the rest of our time gazing upon the beauty of Jesus Christ in the passage that was read today. I think this is why Paul presents this image of Christ, Christ crucified and exalted, right after he's exhorted them to live selflessly, to have humility, because he knows that it is only by beholding the beauty of Christ that the Philippians will be transformed to be like him. And so let's do some beholding together this morning. Look at verse 6 with me. Actually, let's go ahead and read verses 6 through 8, if you have your Bibles. Who though he was in the form of God, talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's begin by beholding the humility of the pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here, Paul reveals the pre-incarnate Christ's equality with God. He was in the form of God, clothed in divine majesty and beauty, sharing and reflecting in God's glory. This echoes what we see in Scripture in Hebrews 1.3, where Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature. We see this in John 17.5, where Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Many theologians will ask the question, what was God doing before creation? What was God doing before creation? Well, one thing's clear. He was not singing queens, somebody to love. You know it. Somebody. Somebody. Somebody, somebody. Somebody find me. Somebody find me. Somebody to love. Can anybody find me somebody to love? Somebody. No, I'm done. (laughs) God was not looking for love in all the wrong places. God is love. He is love within himself. There is nothing lacking. This is this is beautiful. There is nothing lacking within the relationship God has with himself. The Father's eternal existence has been about loving and glorifying the Son. The Father has eternally been pouring out the spirit of life and love on his Son, and the Son has been eternally loving and glorifying the Father. This is how we can say God is love. Do you see? Only a triune God can be love before creation. Some of us, when we hear the word Trinity, we think nap time. And I I get it, sure, it requires us to think deeply, but this is not something reserved for the seminaries to talk about and debate about. This is something that is so important for your daily Christian life. The triune God we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God is Trinity. It should stir our affections for him and leave us in awe and wonder of who God is in himself. It leaves me in awe when I think of Jesus and that he did not see this position of power and glory and honor and joy as something to be grasped, the text says. I think a better translation that shows us the beauty of Jesus here is not something to be grasped, but rather he didn't see it, his position of power and glory and honor, is something to be exploited. You see? As as something for him to take advantage of. He didn't see his power as an opportunity to get, but an opportunity to give. And he gave much. He gave much. Paul goes on. In verse 7, 
Paul wants us to behold the beauty of Christ's incarnation, of his incarnation. Read it with me. In verse 7, Paul writes that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The text says here that he emptied himself or made himself nothing. This has been a point of controversy and debate among biblical scholars. What does it mean? Well, I don't think it means he emptied himself of his deity or his attributes of his deity, that he stopped being divine. No, we profess that Jesus was fully God and fully man. No, here it seems to be a metaphor pointing to the reality that Jesus gave up his divine rights and became a nobody. He gave up his divine rights and became a no one. Paul goes on to say that he took the form of a servant, a slave, a slave. Slaves in Philippi had no rights, no privileges, no honor. They would have been seen as nobody in society. And I think it's important as we read this text to see a connection. Because I think it shows us the beauty of Jesus. A connection between form of God and form of a slave. Form of God and form of a slave or servant. Because apparently, as Paul's writing, he doesn't see these two things as antithetical to one another. He doesn't see them in opposition to one another. In the world of politics, there is nothing like a good photo op. We see them all the time. Various politicians serving at a soup kitchen or some various nonprofit around the country. These PR opportunities humanize them. Right? It gives off the image that their leadership and their office are characterized by humility and service and care of those on the fringes of society and definitely not their own personal political gain. That was a little cynical, I'm sorry. No doubt some politicians are genuine in their service. But we know that there are many whose reign is not characterized by the humility and the selflessness that we see in the photo. It's not characterized by the love that we see in the photo because the photo is simply a PR moment. The photo is not a real expression of who they are. They will no doubt leave the nonprofit and return to their office where they will continue to use their power not to serve before their own gain. Well, it is clear from this passage that that is not Jesus. That is not Jesus. It's not like Jesus said, you know, I think I'm going to leave glory and go do this service thing for a little bit to make a point about love. No, Peter O'Brien says something in his commentary that's, that's beautiful. He says, it's not that Christ, by becoming incarnate, exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave. 
He didn't exchange the form of God for a form of a slave. Well, what did he do? He manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. Wow. He manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. Jesus wrapping himself in humanity, being born in a manger, having no place to lay his head, washing our feet, going to the cross, wasn't a divine photo op. It was an expression of who he is, of who God is, who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. It reveals his eternal character. It reveals his eternal kingship. Do you want to see who God is? Look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. As Colossians 1.15 says, he's the image of the invisible God. This is an image that we did not expect. This is an image of power and glory that we do not often see on the news, that we do not often see in our world. But it is the power. It is the glory. It is the beauty of Jesus. Okay. Lastly, Paul wants us to behold the humility of Christ by looking at his death. By looking at his death, Paul continues to reveal how low Christ stooped. He, he not only became human, he not only became a servant, he not only died, but he died on a cross. On a cross. Three very brief observations about these words that I've reflected on much this week. There are moments in my life when I have been humbled. I will never forget seventh grade. I was on the basketball team. I was playing. It was a rivalry game. I went to take a shot, and I got packed so hard that the ball flew across the entire court and hit off the wall. As I think back to that moment, I can hear everybody going, Oh! The other team, my team, it was absolutely humiliating. And that's just one of many moments. I, I was humbled by something so much more powerful than me. And let me tell you something. I did not choose that. That was not my choice. But as the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote, Christ humbled himself. He was not humbled. There is nothing in this universe that can humble Jesus Christ, for there is nothing more powerful than him. At every Level, his humbling was his own doing. Second observation, Paul says here that Jesus was obedient to death. He was obedient to death. Right now, in our country, there is a lot of division. And there are a thousand different issues on a thousand different perspectives. 
The divides seem so deep, something that we won't be able to come. And as we look at it all, we say, man, there are so many differences. But we all have one thing in common, and that is we're all going to die. And none of us know what that is. We are all going to die, and none of us know when that is. So find comfort in that. We have unity there, right? It's the fate that awaits us all. You and I don't have a choice whether or not we're going to be obedient or disobedient to death. It's coming at us. But Jesus did. Jesus did. Only a divine being can accept death is obedience. And Jesus went to his death willingly in obedience to the Father. He did it because of the love that he has within himself for you. He did it out of his love for the Father. And in so doing, he reveals the heart of the Father. Last observation. He submitted himself not only to death, but to death on a cross. To death on a cross. I don't know if you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, but Gibson there in his admittedly Roman Catholic medieval presentation of Christ's Passion focuses in on the agony of the cross. The agony of the cross. Maybe you can even think of scenes from the movie as I'm talking. And, and rightly so. Jesus was really human. Jesus didn't just appear as a human. He was found in human form. He really felt pain. He really suffered. But here in this passage, I don't think Paul wants us to look at the agony of Christ, although we can, I think he wants us to look at the humiliation of Christ. The, humili- the humiliation of Christ. In, in the Roman world, crucifixion was the most humiliating form of official execution. It was not done privately. Crucifixions were done publicly. It was a display for all to see the power of Rome. It was a display for everyone to look at the person being crucified and to say, look how little this person is. Look how small, look how insignificant, look how unworthy. Our our pictures are, are more delicate than the reality and, and I understand why. But the reality is that people were crucified naked. Why? To shame them. They crucified Jesus naked. They spit on him. They mocked him. And they gambled for his clothes. 
And he chose it. He chose it. He chose the humiliation. That is your God. That is the beauty of Jesus Christ. Look at his humility. Behold his selflessness. We sin against the Creator by substituting ourselves for God, by saying that we want to be God. And astonishingly on the cross, Jesus substitutes himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And God puts himself selflessly where we deserve to be. The punishment that sinful humanity deserved was laid squarely on Christ. The one through whom all things were made was beaten, humiliated, and judged on Golgotha. Do you see what's happened in these verses? We've seen Christ go from the highest position imaginable to the lowest, to the most degrading, shameful position imaginable. Why? Because it's who he is. Because it's who God is. Because it's his glory. His glory is revealed. Here's his character. Here's the beauty of our king. I'll close with this. I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again and I'll probably keep saying it. The day in and day out practices that you choose for yourself and for your family will have a massive shaping impact on who you become and who your children become. We may not think that we're creatures of habit, but we are. And when we look at our day, if we look at our days closely, we will see practices that we take throughout our days. They may be intentional, they may be unintentional. But the reality is, these practices shape who we are as human beings, whether we realize it or not. And there are so many things in this world demanding our attention. We're all so busy. There are so many things in this world grabbing at our affections. There are so many things in this world saying, look at me, give yourself to me. But I believe this morning, I really believe that the biggest need in your life and in my life is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is our biggest need. And I want to be clear, I'm not advocating for some sort of debtor's ethic this morning that goes something like this. Uh, Jesus died on the cross, and you can't even come early on Sunday and serve as a greeter? You know, we've heard messages like that. I've given messages like that in the past to my shame. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is as a body committing ourselves individually 
to beholding the beauty of Jesus Christ on a daily basis. But not only individually, but communally. I'll never forget a conversation I was having with Grace Walski, and we were just talking about how everyone's so busy, and that in the midst of the busyness of our lives, community groups gathering together as a body, gathering together for worship, gathering together to pray for one another, it can be such a challenge. It can be so hard. I've experienced it myself. And I'll never forget what Grace said. She said, yeah, you know, the hardest thing is just getting there. The hardest thing is just getting there. It's just committing ourselves to say we're going to do this because this is important, this is valuable, and even if I am bored out of my mind right now when Brad is teaching, and even if the songs that are selected after this aren't my favorite, I believe that God is here, and I believe that just the simple fact of looking upon him, of gazing at his beauty, of seeing who he is, is worth it. And that through that, God is at work by his Holy Spirit, transforming me to make me more like Jesus Christ. And that with all the things that I could be doing with my time, with all the things that I could be investing in, I'm going to be a people. We are going to be a community that says we will set our affections and our gaze and our sight on Jesus Christ. Can we do that? Can we commit to that? Can you commit to that as a family? Can we commit to that as a body as we gather? Because it is the most important thing for us. Jesus will not leave us to ourselves. Our salvation is good news that God justifies us. He sets us right before God, but he also what? He sanctifies us. He sanctifies us by his Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is how God transforms us. This is how God turns us outside of ourselves. This is how God makes us more like Jesus. So church, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.